Hello again and welcome to this episode of the Rare Possessions Podcast. We're going to be going over Chapter 18 of The Life of Nephi by George Q. Cannon. I'm Nick Galletti, your host. And with me, as always, is Jared Riddick from Book of Mormon Central. Hello, hello. How's it going? Not too bad. We it's are cool outside. It's, yeah, it's a good day. It's a nice day. Uh, we, we're going to be talking about Chapter 18, which is a bit of a shorter section. But in this particular one, he starts off by calling the Nephites an imperial race, which is a very interesting description, not only historically, but how we as modern readers might interpret that word. Yeah, the term imperial and imperialist, even if you're a fan of, uh, of the works of George Lucas, <laughs> is not an overly positive one. President Cannon here seems to use it in the sense of uh, civilizing the land, of agriculture. He goes a great deal into agriculture. Because that's a sign of a civilized people. Mm-hmm. Especially in the 1880s when he's writing this. So as an imperial race, he almost implies that the Nephites had a responsibility to yeah. educate and inspire other natives to be greater people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's implications of colonialism here a bit. I mean, this is the age of imperialism when he's writing this. But you don't really get hints of that from the text. And so it's, it's an interesting... It's a imp- filter. It, it, yeah, it's a filter. Yeah, it's a modern filter for, Cannon, for President Cannon for how he was reading the text. And uh, it's not a way we read it today. So it's an interesting look back at history. Yeah. Here. And it's an interesting way to classify the Nephites. It's mm-hmm. not exactly how they would have probably described what they were doing. Yeah. It seemed very much like they were surviving. Yeah. And in all likelihood, they're a pretty small people. So the term imperial people is actually fairly ironic as well. Yeah. They were not ones that were probably imposing their will on surrounding cultures considering the balance between the Nephites and the Lamanites in population sizes. If you would maybe be able to make the argument that the Lamanites were more imperialistic. Yeah. In, in our modern view of that word. You consider the way they treated the uh, people of Alma the Elder and uh, yeah. the people of uh, Zenith and Limhi, then it actually does fit them a fair bit better. <laughs> so we also have an interesting section here. I guess we should say that this is the chapter where if there was a tourist bureau for Come these countries. visit South America. Yeah, he, he certainly goes out of his way to give accounts of contemporary travelers that brought reports of a beautiful, fertile, rich land and, you know, a place that people should visit. But part of that was that he goes into a description of the life expectancy of some of these characters, these individuals in the Book of Mormon, and how it actually kind of ties to a people in Ecuador that have long life. And so he's making a lot of um, interesting assertions on the, onto the text. I'll be, it, it, it's a stretch. I'll say that, even reading, just reading that now, I don't think it's necessarily necessary, that's a yeah. double, double use there, to extend the Nephite life expectancy here. He puts some, he says Enos has got to be 129. Yeah, he, he had, uh, Jerem was 100 years old when he gave the plates to Omni, and that Enos was 120 years old when he died. Okay. Now, this, these are guesses. Of course, mm-hmm. the text itself doesn't say he was... X. Yeah, we very rarely get actual ages, at least in this part of the text. We get them more in Alma. But there's a, there's a video that National Geographic put out several years ago, which I alluded to before we started recording this, um, called uh, Civil War Children, in which they discussed that as of, fil- as of filming in 2015, when they recorded this video, there was two children of Civil War veterans still alive and in pretty good possession of their faculties. And they were both conceived when their fathers were in their 80s. And so I don't have an issue with Enos being a child of Jacob very late in Jacob's life. I think that's perfectly plausible. Enos has got some memories of his dad, of Jacob, but they're memories from his youth, it seems like. 
Yeah. Not of his young, not of his young manhood. So at this point we have George Cucannon essentially humanizing them as best as he possibly can. Mm -hmm. Instead of these people like Enos, who just has the one chapter who we don't really know much about his story. He's trying to fill in gaps. He's trying to make these characters. He's white spacing. He, well, he's three making them three dimensional mm -hmm. and, and I can appreciate that. But as far as the narrative of the book of Mormon goes, it's not particularly critical that he was 120 years old when he died. Yeah. But it's interesting that, that Cannon kind of goes through this exploration and where he's extrapolating what he thinks is, is data that's present in the material. And so it's interesting to go through all that and, and see what George Q. Cannon has to say with respect to that sort of stuff. And again, uh, we want to encourage people to stay tuned now and listen to chapter 18 of the book and uh, enjoy your little brochure on South America. Happy travels. Chapter 18, The Life of Nephi, by George Q. Cannon. A traveler by the name of Markham, in speaking of the country between the northern line of Chile and the southern line of Ecuador, country which we think was called the land of Nephi, and in some portion of which Nephi settled with his people when he fled from his brethren, says, This vast tract comprises every variety of climate and contains within its limits most prolific tropical forests, valleys with the climate of Italy, a coast region resembling Sind or Egypt, temperate hillsides or plateau, bleak and chilling pasturelands, and lofty peaks and ridges within the limits of eternal snows. On one mountainside the eye may embrace at a single glance sugar cane and banana under cultivation in the lowest zone, waving fields of Indian corn a little higher up, shaded by tall trees, orchards of tropical fruits, stretches of wheat and barley, steep slopes covered with potato and quinoa, bleak pastures where llamas and alpacas are browsing and rocky pinnacles streaked with snow. Such a country with such a variety of climates and products as well as adapted for the cradle of an imperial race as the Nephites proved to be, the mighty obstacles of nature which some portions of that country presented were such as to tax their ingenuity to the utmost. But Humboldt has well observed that when enterprising races inhabit a land where the form of the ground presents to them difficulties on a grand scale which they may conquer and overcome, the contest with nature becomes a means of increasing their strength and power, as well as their courage. Stevenson, in his Twenty Years in South America, speaking of one of the provinces of this region, the various climates assisted by the various localities of the soil would produce all the necessaries and all the luxuries of life. For in the small compass of fifty leagues, a traveler experiences the almost unbearable heat of the torrid zone, the mild climates of the temperature, and the freezing cold of the polar regions. The cities of Lehi, Nephi, and Shilom, which Zenith calls the land of our fathers, were doubtless delightfully situated and possessed every advantage of climate and soil. This appears evident from the anxiety of some of the children of those whom Mosiah, by the command of the Lord, led away from that land through the wilderness to Zarahemla, to go back there and live. Modern travelers speak in language of the highest praise of the region and some parts of which we suppose those cities stood. Spruce, an English traveler, says, in speaking of the plains in Ecuador, A journey of four hours will place the traveler in the region of eternal frost, or in the space of half a day he can descend the deep and sultry valleys that separate the mighty chain of the Andes. Or, finally, he may visit the tropical forests extending to the shores of the Pacific. This variation of temperature, dependent on elevation and occurring within narrow limits, 
furnishes a daily and diversified supply of vegetable food. From the plantain, which as a substitute for bread is largely consumed by the inhabitants of the coast, to the wheat, potato, and other grains and roots growing luxuriantly on the cool tablelands of the interior. Besides these, the market is furnished with pineapples, chironoyas, guayavas, guavas, the fruits of different species of passion flower, oranges and lemons, and from January to April, certain European fruits such as apples, pears, quinces, peaches, apricots, and strawberries. Stevenson says of a part of this region which he visited, These valleys are principally under cultivation and bless the husbandmen with a continued succession of crops, for the uninterrupted sameness of the climate in any spot is such as to preclude the plant as well as the fruit from being damaged by sudden changes in the temperature of the atmosphere, changes which are in other countries so detrimental to the health of the vegetable world. The fertility of some of these valleys exceeds all credibility. The veracity of the description would be doubted did not the knowledge of their localities and the universal description of the equitability and benignity ensure the probability. An European is astonished on his first arrival here to see the plow and the sickle, the sower and the thrashing floor, at the same time in equal requisition, to see at one step an herb fading through age, and at the next, one of the same kind springing up, one flower decayed and drooping, and its sisters unfolding their beauties to the sun, some fruits inviting the hand to pluck them, and others in succession beginning to show their ripeness. Others can scarcely be distinguished from the color of the leaves which shade them, while the opening blossoms ensure a continuation. Nothing can be more beautiful than to stand on an eminence and observe the different gradations of the vegetable world, from the half-unfolded blade just springing from the earth, to the ripe harvest, yellowing in the sun and gently waving in the breeze. An enumeration of the different vegetable productions of this province would be useless. It will be sufficient to observe that grain, pulse, fruits, esculents, and horticultural vegetables are produced in the greatest abundance of an excellent quality, as well as all kinds of flesh meat and poultry. Another traveler, Hasurik, who resided four years in that country as United States minister, gives us an equally enchanting description of portions of Ecuador which he visited. Speaking of the country around Cotadachi and Atundiqui, he says, it is chiefly a grain region. Indian corn, barley, wheat, and potatoes grow in unlimited abundance. All the grains and fruits of the temperate zone could be introduced here. In the gardens and orchards, the peach, the fig tree, and the wild grape grow by the side of the chermoya, the aguacate, and the raspberry. The climate is delightful. It is the same all the year round. No torrid season enervates the inhabitants of this favored realm. No icy winter sends him shivering to the chimney fire. In fact, stoves and chimneys are unknown. And to know what heat is, one would have to descend to the sultry valley of the Chota, where the Negro hums his merry tunes among coffee and plantain trees and the sugar cane. There is no starvation in this neighborhood. Nobody dies from cold. Nobody sinks sunstruck to the ground. No troublesome insects molest the inhabitants. Epidemics are unknown. Healthy faces peep at you through the long hedges of aloes. Healthy faces stare at you from every Indian cottage. It is not sickness. It is foreign war and internecine strife and perpetual convulsions that disseminate the population and scatter death and decay where wealth and bliss should smile. The golden harvest spring, the unfailing sun, 
sheds light and life, the fruits, the flowers, the trees. Arise in due succession, all things speak, peace and harmony and love. The universe, in nature's silent eloquence, declares that all fulfill the works of love and joy. All but the outcast man, he fabricates the sword which stabs his peace, he cherisheth the snakes that gnaw at his heart. The description of Ecuador, its climate, and its productions by modern travelers agrees with that which is said in the Book of Mormon concerning the lands of Lehi-Nephi and of Shilom, which Zenith and his company entered into treaty with the king of the Lamanites to repossess. They raised all manner of seeds, corn, wheat, barley, knees, and shaim, and all kinds of fruits. From this brief description by Zenith of the productions of the land, we can gather a very correct idea of the character of the climate and the soil. The climate was not too hot for wheat and barley, not too cool for all kinds of fruits. In fact, if not exactly the same land as that visited by the modern travelers from whom we quote, it was a land resembling it in climate and productions. Zenith also says they multiplied and prospered in the land. In such a healthy country as Hasarik describes, they would multiply in such a fruitful country, they would prosper. There is one noticeable feature in the record of the Nephites which strikes one who has lived only in our northern climate and zone. It is the rapidity with which they recovered from the disastrous effects of civil and religious commotions and bloody wars. The frequent allusions through the record to the wonderfully rapid prosperity which followed the cessation of strife is apt to strike the northern reader with surprise. But when we become familiar with the character of the lands occupied by the Nephites, this surprise ceases. That which was known as the land of Nephi, comprehending an immense district of country, was so favored in climate and soil, was so abundantly blessed in all vegetables and minerals, and was generally so healthy that an industrious people like the Nephites would surround themselves with every comfort and luxury in what would appear to the inhabitants of less favored localities an incredibly short space of time. The land settled by Nephi and his company had, without a doubt, a healthy climate. We are not informed as to the age of Nephi or his brothers or their immediate descendants at their demise, but from the dates which are given it is very evident they lived to a great age. Correct habits of living with pure lives and the blessing of God upon them promoted longevity. We think it's apparent from the record that immediately after leaving Jerusalem there was a remarkable increase in the duration of life among those who were called Nephites. Jacob, who was born in the wilderness of Arabia, took charge of the plates after the death of his brother Nephi, and he bequeathed them to his son Enos. The year in which he gave them to Enos in consequence of his own great age and approaching departure is not given. Neither are we informed what the age of Enos was at the time he took possession of the plates. But Enos tells us that 179 years from the time Lehi left Jerusalem, he himself began to be old and he saw that he must soon go down to the grave. How long he lived after this is not stated, but from this date it is plain that Jacob and Enos must have lived to be very old men. Jacob was probably born soon after his parents left Jerusalem, so that his life and that of his son Enos must have nearly covered the period mentioned by the latter, 179 years. The son of Enos and grandson of Jacob, whose name was Jerem, took charge of the plates after Enos. We do not know how old he was at the time they were handed to him, but we learn that he finished his writing upon them 238 years after Lehi left Jerusalem. That is, he had possession of the plates about 59 years. 
From this, it appears that he believed to be very old. For if Jacob, his grandfather, was born within four years after Lehi left Jerusalem, and Enos was born before Jacob was 75 years of age, Enos must have been at least 100 years old at the time that he writes concerning his approaching descent to the grave. And if Enos was born within 79 years after Lehi left Jerusalem, and Jerem was born to Enos at the time the latter was 59 years old, Jerem must have been 100 years old when he delivered the plates to his son Omni. If he lived to be 100 years old, he must have been about 41 years of age when his father delivered the records to him. But we are inclined to think he was older than this, and that his father Enos was at least 120 years old when he died. The plates containing the records were in the hands of Omni 44 years, or until 282 years from the departure of Lehi from Jerusalem. Thus, we have four men in direct descent whose lives from the birth of the first to the death of the fourth cover a period of but little, if any, less than 280 years. These are very remarkable instances of longevity. It speaks highly for the correctness of their habits and the salubriousness of the climate where they lived and shows how greatly they were favored of the Lord. Travelers inform us that in portions of the countries of Ecuador and Peru, the inhabitants attain a very high age. In one valley in Ecuador, visited by Hazarek, the curate told him that persons who lived a hundred or more years did not at all constitute exceptional cases. Another traveler says, Longevity is common among the Peruvian Indians. I witnessed the burial of two in a small village, one of whom had attained the age of 127 and the other of 109, yet both enjoyed unimpaired health due to a few days before their decease. On examining the parish books of Barranca, I found that in seven years, eleven Indians had been buried, whose joint ages amounted to 1,207. Thank you for listening to the Rare Possessions Podcast from the archives of Book of Mormon Central. For the latest information on additions to the Book of Mormon Central Archive, or to inquire about archive items like this one, visit us online at archive.bookofmormoncentral.org.